Welcome to Morning Commute, navigating new and emerging HR-positive breast cancer care paradigms. In this episode, an actor and supporting cast take the stage in HR-positive breast cancer. Dr. Adam Broski and Dr. Heather MacArthur discuss some newer treatment approaches for patients with HR-positive breast cancer, including PI3K inhibition, AKT inhibition, and oral selective estrogen receptor down regulators. Morning Commute is developed by Projects and Knowledge, powered by Kaplan, and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Daiichi Sankyo and AstraZeneca. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash breast one You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Brofsky is Professor of Medicine at UPC Hillman Cancer Center at the University of Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania. Dr. MacArthur is the Clinical Director of Breast Oncology in the Department of Internal Medicine at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. I am your host, Candace Hoffman. Dr. Brofsky will begin our discussion. You know, Heather, so thanks for joining. Um, this is the first of our podcasts talking about emergent treatment in breast cancer. Um, and I think the first thing is talk about, let's talk about uh, endocrine therapy for metastatic disease. And before we get into kind of second and third line therapy and whatnot, you know, obviously the big question for everybody's minds, and we'll take a few minutes, is CDK4-6. Uh, everybody gets it, obviously. But which one do we use? And there seems to be a divergence in the community versus academic oncologists. You know, what's your take on that? What do you think? Well, for me, until that last ASCO, when the survival data was um, presented from the first-line palpocyclib and first-line ribocyclib studies, up until then, I had been using palpocyclib in the first-line setting together with whatever hormone therapy backbone I thought was appropriate. But really, with the survival advantage um, conferred in the Mona Lisa study in favor of ribocyclib um, and the absence of a survival advantage in the Paloma study, I did change my practice. And I now, uh, for patients with newly diagnosed uh, metastatic breast cancer, I do initiate therapy typically with an AI together with ribocyclib. That being said, I certainly have patients in my practice who continue to benefit from the palpocyclib that was previously prescribed. So I haven't been taking people off palpocyclib, but I have changed my approach for newly diagnosed metastatic breast cancer patients. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm in the same boat. I think that I never used ribo before. I mean, I think that, you know, I really was palpocyclib. And to be honest with you, most of my patients did absolutely fine. I mean, it was the rare patient who would progress really quickly in, in 12 months. Uh, you know, I have people out now nine years. I don't know about you, but uh, I patient out nine years still on their first line therapy. I mean, they had minimal bone metastasis to begin with. So that must be the natural history of the disease anyway. But yeah, it is no, there are definitely funny. people who are benefiting from palpocyclic. Yeah. I, don't, I don't doubt that at all. I would agree with you. I mean, the ribo is kind of where we're going. Um, the, it, there was a learning uptake, though, I have to say, in switching to ribocyclic because we hadn't been prescribing ribocyclic at all. Um, yeah. And so we did need to develop some SOPs around. Um, the EKG monitoring, ensuring that someone actually looked at the EKGs and responded accordingly. 
Um, so that right. did require a little bit of upfront effort, but now, you know, these many months later, um, it's it's been really easy and patients have tolerated it very well. Yeah, no, I agree with you. It's the same thing. It was a learning curve doing EKGs every two weeks for like six weeks or something. Just be sure the QT is okay. You know, we still run into the drug interaction issues. You know, someone's on an antidepressant or you decide to give them Zofran and you get some, you know, alert from the whatever, either your EMR or the pharmacist. Well, you know, there's an interaction sort of thing and you got to deal with that. But I agree. I mean, I think that uh, it really has been a fairly easy transition. Um, so the next question, it really kind of gets into, okay, so we put people on the CDK4. And in my experience, most people do pretty well, you know, for three, two, three, four years. And I'm curious before, again, one other thing I want to talk about before we start talking about what happens next is what do you think this whole thing with the right choice data, you know, what do you think, you know, just to kind of refresh the, our audience's uh, recollections, you know, this is a trial that was done in premenopausal women. Everybody got LHRH agonist and they're all given um, an AI uh, with ribo or chemo for near visceral crisis. And again, that's the problem. Visceral crisis is in the eye of the beholder. And I'm sure when the paper tried to get published, it's gonna be a little bit of an issue. But nonetheless, in those kind of near visceral crisis patients, it looked like that ribo and endocrine therapy had a 24 month PFS versus about 12 months for chemo. And even in, you know, and they were doing CTs every six weeks to be sure they didn't escape. I mean, do you, are there any patients now given right choice that you would give chemo to first line your positive disease? I mean, I first have to applaud the investigators who designed and implemented the right choice study because that was a really brave thing to do in my mind, take people who are at risk of visceral crisis or impending visceral crisis and randomize them to that combination versus chemotherapy. Whereas I think our conventional thinking has been that for rapidly progressive disease with imminent crisis, that one automatically needs to go to chemotherapy. And as you pointed out, a doubling in PFS in favor of the ribocyclob arm was um, pretty shocking I think, to, to everyone. And the benefits were really uh, consistent across the subgroups that were interrogated. So I think it gave us a lot of security about using these drugs and maybe these higher risk populations. There has been ongoing storytelling um, from various sources over the years about um, using the CDK4-6 inhibitors in patients of initially it was concerning cl clinical characteristics. And then there've been a lot of, a um, lot more focus recently on um, the uh, visceral versus non-visceral disease subsets. Um, I'm not sure where the truth lies anymore, to be quite frank. Right. But this did give me pause, and it did um, make me a little bit more confident in trying the CDK-based approaches in a higher-risk population. So I can't imagine a situation unless there were lung mats and there were some, you know, real breathing issues that needed yeah. timely attention. Although, you know, the time to uh, response was actually pretty impressive when they compared the chemo versus the ribo. Um, it was a little bit, even though it's significant, it was a little bit better with chemo. When you're with really chemo, but not much, but not, not as much as I think you and I might've predicted if we were going to predict these results. And this is double chemo too, you know, right. who gives double chemo unless you really, you know, want to get a quick response. Right. Anyway, 
All right. So, you know, moving forward. So the next question that a lot of people have in this field as we get into progression is when, when and if you do next-gen sequencing. Now, a lot of people will do next-gen, not a lot. I'd say in talking to a lot of people, a substantial minority will do next-gen in an ER-positive patient as soon as they're diagnosed with metastatic disease. And the question is, when would you do it? I usually do it at first progression. How, how do you feel? Historically, I have done it at um, diagnosis of metastatic disease. You know, we always pursue a biopsy to confirm um, suspected metastatic disease. And so historically, I have done genomics on that initial uh, biopsy sample. But now with the advent of um, a drug that's FDA approved that targets acquired ESR1 mutations, I um, have changed my practice and I typically now wait until progression after the first line AI CDK4-6 inhibitor. Although I know academically and intellectually, um, I'm still tempted to do it upfront because I just want to, out of curiosity, understand the biology of what's driving someone's disease. Um, but in all honesty, it's not now impacting any upfront clinical decisions, um, whereas it does on progression after the AI CDK. So now I'm tending to do it more on progression than I had historically. Got it. Okay. So you do it and someone has a PA3 kinase mutation. So what's your next choice at that point? You know, we have data on CDK beyond CDK. We'll, we'll skip that for a minute. Mm -hmm. What do you do? What do you do when someone has a PA3 kinase mutation? Or what, you give alpelicib? I would potentially give alpelicib and full vestrant based on the solar one data, um, which showed a PFS advantage in that mutated population. No overall survival advantage, of course, but um, a PFS advantage. And I think there is some benefit to be had. Um, the hyperglycemia is, of course, an issue with that medication and uh, often requires additional medical management. Um, so it's exciting to me that there are other strategies, not yet FDA approved, like AKT inhibition that also target this pathway and seem to have benefits that are agnostic of PIK3CA mutation status, even though they're targeting that related pathway. So yes, I would consider alpalisib with fulvestrant based on the solar one data, but I think it's an exciting space where there are a lot of um, forthcoming terrific options that are competing with that option. Yeah. So, I mean, let's push that a little bit further. So, you know, we have alpalisib and a lot of people's experience. I mean, I'm okay with the hyperglycemia, to be honest with you. I mean, I can deal with it. I usually do a fasting glucose once a week. Uh, and if it goes above 150, really push the metformin as high as I can go and then start to decrease it. Um, and then if I have to go to insulin, I personally generally stop. I'm not going to give insulin unless someone's having a dramatic response to the alpelisib. But the question is, you know, you're kind of hinting at, hinting at pivasertib. And obviously we're talking now, we, it hasn't got FDA approval yet. Um, do you think it's going to get FDA approval agnostic of PA3 kinase? I think it will. I think it will. I think it will. Um, as we're just reminding ourselves, as we're talking about alpalisib, of course, on solar one, it was the vast minority of patients who'd had a prior CDK4-6 inhibitor too. So we're sort of outside of what we've just described as our standard of care upfront approach and in interpreting this data. So hard to know. 
Um, so hard to know there. But yes, I think that um, I think the AKT inhibitor based on the Capitello study will be approved. The benefits look pretty consistent in my mind um, across the subgroups in both the PIK3CA and mutated and the non-mutated populations. So I, I suspect it will be. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like 7.2 versus like, I think, four or five, I think five months or something like that in BFS, a hint of an OS benefit. You know, the PI3 kinase AKT mTOR mutated or PI3 kinase P10 um, uh, AKT mutated patients had roughly the same hazard ratio. It wasn't that much different. So it's going to be really interesting what the FDA says. Um, the one thing that got people concerned was when they presented the data at ESMO breast of the, of the majority of patients who had had a prior CDK, which is going to be everybody basically, mm -hmm. uh, against this drug, that it was only five and a half months versus I think three months or something like that. So people were a little bit disappointed with that. Um, I personally am not, I don't mind that as much. Uh, I think that uh, we're just going to have to see. I think the toxicity is much better, I think, with uh, capivacertib. I mean, you know, again, the, the thing is take the weekend off. That's what we're going to tell people because it's four days that you take the weekend right. off. You don't do four days a week. It is a little tricky, the, the dosing with that. Schedule, yeah, but I guess I'm going to start people on a Monday and just say, stop, you know, stop it on Friday or something like that. It's just easy to remember. But the other thing is that, you know, the, the instance hyperglycemia is much less. Diarrhea tends to be, I think, going to be the issue here uh, with capivacertib, but we'll have to see. It doesn't seem like it yeah, was. Yeah, I think it was about three quarters of patients who had diarrhea. Fortunately, a few of them were high grade, but it's sort of, it's similar to the abemocyclib. <laughs> right, exactly. So, you know, an abemocyclib, you know, as we know, can be an issue. But 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 I think that, I think and we're all looking forward to capivacertib, and I think that it may, who knows, it may replace alpelicid here. We'll have to see, I think, based on the top. It's profile. great to have another oral option in this space. And, um, you know, that overall survival, we need further overall survival follow-up from this study. But the overall survival with only limited maturity overall looked very promising. So I, I would predict that it's gonna be a great option. And as we're gonna talk in a few minutes, the problem now is all the HER2 low patients are gonna get an uh, ADC, you know, like trastuzumab drugs TCAN, and that's gonna mess up the OS of all these studies. I think that's something that, you know, although, you know, who knows? I mean, who knows where, you know, trastuzumab, tras, you know, TDXD is gonna be available. But anyway, but, Let's let's move on a little bit and talk. So someone has an ESR1 mutation. So on your next gen, mm -hmm. right, already on and say, I don't know, you know, letrozole and palbocyclin. Mm -hmm. And they have progression, more bone nets. And at this point, you know, you do a next gen, they're ESR wild type. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, they're PF3 counties wild type and ESR mutated. Yeah. You know, what do you do in that sense? Are you gonna give them alicestrin or not? I, I would. So based on the Emerald Phase 3 study, again, randomizing patients to receive l which was 400 milligrams daily versus investigator's choice of endocrine therapy, which I think would be the alternative reasonable choice for the patient that you describe. Um, very consistent benefits, and they had some interesting landmark analyses um, based on prior CDK6 uh, inhibitor exposure, 6, 12, and 18 months, and those with 12 or more months prior exposure seem to do especially well with that strategy. Um, and the PFS um, hazard ratios were pretty impressive, right? In the range of four to five and overall survival in both the intention to treat and the 
mutated ESR1 mutation populations were not statistically significant, but they were trending in favor of LSS rent. So I think it's a great option with a very favorable safety profile as well. Yeah, so, but let me ask you a question. So again, progression, ESR1 mutation, PI3 kinase mutation, double mutation, mm -hmm. which happens to some degree. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no data on safety with alicestrin in any combo. Are you okay at, with a single agent and second-line therapy? I would be, and I would sequence them, and I would do what we've historically done with hormone therapies in the past, which is um, optimize my sequencing of oral therapies to stave off the necessity for chemotherapy. So I would not use them in combination. I would use them in sequence. Got it. So you would. See, I, I don't know. I mean, I think I'm more like fulvestrin and targeted agent, and then maybe later on elicestrin, because there's data that, you know, I think a third of the patients on Emerald had prior fulvestrin, and right. they had a response to elicestrin. So it's interesting how people are going to do elicestrin. Um, have you had any trouble just offhand, you know, with um, reimbursement with it and, and kind of the patient assistance programs? Have you at least anecdotally? I, I did recently have difficulty getting LSSTRIN for uh, one of my patients and had to um, call in. Um, I think it was even the first patient that I put on LSSTRIN. And <laughs> I think the feedback to the company was one of our KOLs can't get access <laughs> to drug in her first patient. Um, so they worked really hard on their end to their credit to um, help. And it was an insurance issue with a, a cross coverage with a veterans hospital insurance issue. So it was a complicated insurance um, issue, but I have to say that the, the sponsor was very helpful in getting the patient, the medication finally, but it took several months, quite frankly, and thank goodness she had indolent disease and could wait that period of time. So what do you think up at the other oral source? So there's giridestrin is in Avera, which mm -hmm. is Avarolimus versus, gir, I think, giridestrin Avarolimus. What do you think of Avera? I mean, it's accruing pretty rapidly, actually. Are you guys participating in Avera or not? We're not. We're not, no. Okay. All right. Um, I mean, so I don't even know how to... Acera is the giridestrin one? Is that it? Which one? Acera? Yeah, which was... Which was negative. It's, Evera. Right? it's the of the ERAs, which is girodestrin. Right. Then camazestrin, which is more in kind of like that PADA one design mm -hmm. where people are getting serial ESRs. And if you get a mutation, then you're randomized to continued AI plus palbo versus camazestrin and palbo. And it turns out only I don't know, are you doing you're not doing Serena six, are you? That's a Serena We're six. We're not, no. Yeah. So we're doing that, and it turns out only about 10% of the patients uh, actually convert, uh, at least the ones, you know, you have to be at least six months on a CDK4-6 and, and an AI, and then you're randomized to, uh, you know, again, then you start doing every three-month ESRs. Right. Um, and only about 10% of the patients are converting a lot less, I think, than people thought. Interesting. So we'll see where that goes. And now we have these ProTac um, ER degraders. That's a pretty bold design. It is. Yeah, a pretty bold design that what is it, Veritas 2 or something like that, where they're giving a CDK versus, I think, an AI and CDK. Is that the design? I forgot what the design was. I thought the design, um, well, the design for what we've seen so far from them, it's just, just a phase been at the two, two right? doses. Two, yeah, right. it's the phase two. 
Um, so I, I'm not, I'm not sure what the next iteration is for them, but I, I think it's combination, but I just don't remember the exact details. I'm afraid. Yeah. I'm trying to remember too. I mean, the issue is that, I mean, there is activity, you know, on heavily retreated patients. I like the concept of it. Um, you know, there are a lot of these kind of like, you know, disruptors, you know, trying to somehow target the receptor, you know, the degradation pathway, you know, there's yeah. like these civil three things and, and other things, you know, that, uh, you know, there's, we've been doing this for years, HSP-90 inhibitors have right. been around for about 20 years. People have been trying this kind of concept. So we'll have to see what happens. I think that, uh, I know there are two phase three trials that are, I think, either started ongoing or just started. And, you know, we'll have to see exactly where the protacs are going to be. Yeah, we'll see what happens. I mean, I think they're really cool things. And, uh, you know, we'll see where they go. I think it's going to be really interesting. And, I remember last year at San Antonio, um, Fabrice Andre said something really interesting. When he was talking, he was the discussion of the Capitello 291 trial. And what he said was, you want to try to get that secondary hormonal period as long as you can. And what we're looking for is something that gives us at least a year. And right now we have nothing. You know, we have maybe five months, six months, seven months, maybe eight months. But once we get that drug in the second line that gives us at least a year or two, you know, of more hormonal therapy, I think that's going to be a real advance. And I tend to agree with him on that one. And, you know, who knows? We'll have to see. I mean, Emerald, you know, if you pick the patients properly, you do see people who are on for a long time, like the more than 18 months or something like that with an hormone mutation uh, on their CDK tend to do very well afterwards. Over a year, I think a lot of them. Right, right. Well, and then what are we going to do now that you know, based on monarchy, we have adjuvant and bemocyclob, and then with Natalie, adjuvant ribocyclob will be approved. CDKs will be ubiquitous in the curative intent setting. How do we think about this whole portfolio of data and the patients who recur after that exposure? We're going to be challenged, but these are, again, right. these are these are good problems to have that we have so many promising agents in this space. Right. I mean, I'm old enough to remember. Uh, all we have was tamoxifen, you know, and maybe aminoglutethamide and maybe high-dose estrogen, if we were lucky. And our big debates at ASCO were whether to give paclitaxel every three weeks or weekly. And now we're talking like six, fifth, six-line therapies. It's just incredible where this field has come, um, you know, in the last 25 years. Just amazing. And hopefully we'll see what happens coming forward. Can't. I can't say that I remember those days because uh, as you're a lot younger than I am, Heather. Put it that way. Um, no, I think it's really I think it's exciting to have so much activity in this space and so many promising oral therapies with um, clinically meaningful improvements and the survival from this disease has just changed astronomically from, you know, median overall survival a few years ago was two to three years. And now with first line AI CDK4-6, the median duration of response is two years. So what tremendous progress in recent years and only more to come. Right. I agree. Great. Well, again, uh, thank everybody for listening to us and uh, hopefully you enjoyed this. Thank you. Remember to receive your credit and evaluate this program please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash HR positive breast one. You can find all of the episodes in this series and all of our other podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming service or download our Morning Commute app. 
Thank you for joining us today. 